Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 4, Opposites Attract, the Franco-Russian Alliance. The year 1888 is a watershed moment in the origins of the Great War. With the death of Frederick III, the crown of Germany now passed to the 29-year-old prince, Wilhelm II. Unlike his predecessors, Wilhelm had no interest in maintaining stable relations with the other European powers. He scoffed at Bismarck's complex alliance system and felt the Chancellor was too old and too conservative to reflect his vision for a new modern Germany. The relationship between the two men was rocky from the start, and they rarely ever saw eye to eye. Wilhelm had grown jealous of Bismarck's prestige within the imperial court and identified that if he was going to establish himself as the true ruler of Germany, Bismarck would have to be removed from the equation. Whether he was too exhausted to protest, or simply found the new Kaiser's attitude unbearable, Bismarck, the man who had brought security and stability to the Second Reich, was dismissed from office in March of 1890. Never again would Germany have another statesman who could equal Bismarck's caliber, and not only would this be bad for Germany, but for the rest of Europe. Under Wilhelm, Germany would pursue a new course of imperial policy which was radically different than that of Bismarck's. While Bismarck was careful not to shake the status quo and keep Germany as a continental power, Wilhelm believed that the time had come for it to establish itself as a globally dominant nation. He felt that Bismarck's alliances were a sign of weakness, and if he were to lead his nation into this new era, then he had no interest in paying lip service to the other powers. Beginning with the Russians in 1891, Wilhelm would slowly allow the Bismarckian system to unravel. In 1895 and 1899, he would irk the British over events in China and South Africa, and in 1911, he would draw the ire of the French over their interests in Morocco. It seems that with every political crisis between 1890 and 1914, Wilhelm was there to stir the pot. Many historians, such as John Rule, have put forth the argument that it was Wilhelm and his unstable behavior which was the single catalyst for the deterioration of diplomatic relations leading to the First World War, while others, notably Max Weber, have claimed that the diplomatic breakdown prior to 1914 had less to do with the Kaiser specifically, but more to do with a weakness within the German imperial structure, which had allowed Wilhelm to take such an unchecked role in political and military decision-making. While both arguments bring unique evidence to the table, Weber's thesis allows us to see a more complete image of Wilhelm's Germany, as opposed to isolating the Kaiser in a vacuum. After all, in Bismarck's day, the Kaisers, Wilhelm I and Frederick III, were essentially figureheads of the state, who although had supreme authority over decision-making, left the regular duties of government in the hands of the capable chancellor. Under Wilhelm II, however, we see the emergence of a sole ruler, who appointed ministers and military chiefs of staff who were in line with his own political thinking, Alfred von Schlieffen and Alfred von Tirpitz being two such figures whose influence on the Kaiser helped set the military culture of Germany leading to 1914. But it should also be noted that Weber's structuralist argument does not absolve Wilhelm of all guilt. We will have a lot more to say about the man as he does play a highly influential role leading to the First World War. But for this week, I thought it would be worthwhile to highlight just how fast Wilhelm's diplomatic view affected the overall political situation in Europe. 
So for this episode, I want to focus on how Wilhelm's influence paved the way for probably the most unusual and shocking military agreement of the late 19th century, the Franco-Russian alliance in 1894, which was a direct result of not only Wilhelm's neglect of Germany's relationship with Russia, but also the total disregard of Bismarck's creed of keeping the French isolated and friendless. But before we begin, I want to stop and make note of a correction from last week. I mentioned that in 1891, Wilhelm had failed to renew the old Three Emperors League, which was what originally raised Russian suspicion of the Kaiser's military intentions in the East, when in fact it was not the Three Emperors League specifically which Wilhelm failed to renew, but a secret agreement signed between the Germans and Russians known as the Reinsurance Treaty in 1887. The treaty, which would be up for renewal every four years, guaranteed that both Russia and Germany would remain neutral if either side were to be attacked by an outside power. This agreement, however, was Bismarck's incentive to get the Russians to rejoin the Three Emperors League along with Austria-Hungary. So, I apologize for that. Not a total blunder, but one which ate away at me for the past few days. So now, let's dust ourselves off and get back on track. With the lapse of the Reinsurance Treaty in 1891, it opened the door for the formation of the Franco-Russian Alliance three years later. During this period, the idea of the French and Russians coming to any sort of agreement was about as ridiculous as a universal health bill between Sweden and North Korea. It just wouldn't make sense. For starters, the two powers had a history of hostility, dating back to Napoleon's ill-fated invasion in 1812, but also their political ideals, which did not leave much room for accommodations for the other. Since 1848, France had become the continental champion of republican democracy, where liberty and public opinion played a large role in the day-to-day government, while the Russians remained a strict autocracy, with the Tsar as the unquestioned strongman in power. To the French, and arguably to the rest of the world as well, the Romanov dynasty in Russia represented everything that was wrong and backward. Although serfdom had been abolished back in 1861 by Alexander II, the vast majority of Russia's 122 million inhabitants lived under squalid conditions and received little to no sympathy from the leadership. While the Tsars lived in isolated villas in royal palaces, the common people remained tied to the land, where starvation and illiteracy had effectively made them no different than peasants from the Middle Ages. Compared to the British, Germans, or even the French, Russian industrial production was little more than an idea. Its output of coal was one-tenth that of Germany, and its steel furnaces put out only a third to that of Great Britain, which meant that it was heavily dependent on trade and imports if it wished to remain a great power. While the Three Emperors League did allow foreign investment into Russia, the lapse of the Reinsurance Treaty had made German investments no longer a guarantee, and if the Tsar wanted to keep the cash flowing, he would have to look somewhere else. Although the Tsar had pushed Wilhelm II to renew the treaty, the Kaiser, following the advice of Bismarck's successor, Leo von Caprivi, turned a deaf ear. He justified his position by arguing that if the treaty were to ever go public, then it would be devastating for German credibility. Instead, the Kaiser insisted that his family connection to the Tsar, Alexander III, would be more than enough to keep the two powers on friendly terms. The Tsar, however, was in no mood for taking the new Kaiser's word for it and instantly felt that an attack from one or all members of the Triple Alliance would be soon on the horizon. The assumption by Wilhelm, only a year after Bismarck's resignation, 
was his first of many blunders. If the Kaiser was banking on the goodwill of his name, then it is no surprise that he did not see the French already on their way. And, as a matter of fact, they just slipped through the open window. Since 1871, Bismarck had succeeded in keeping the French politically and militarily isolated from the rest of Europe. While securing the Austro-Hungarians and Russians into various agreements, in addition to keeping the British on friendly terms, meant that the Third Republic of France had no viable options. But since its defeat, France had undergone a serious restructuring, which makes it difficult to believe that anyone, including Bismarck, would have been able to keep it isolated forever. It was briefly mentioned last episode that after their humiliation in the Franco-Prussian War, there emerged an almost obsessive desire in France to re-establish itself as a premier military force. The anger of the French people was primarily directed at Louis-Napoleon III and the administration of the Second Republic. After their armies were crushed by superior German forces, the people of France had seen their defeat not as a result of a poor military performance, but as a result of a treacherous virus within the government itself. The public belief that the Second Republic was corrupt and that Napoleon III had sold his people out in exchange for a comfy exile in England was regarded as a reality. In other words, the public believed that Germany and France were militarily equal, and that they had only been beaten by their own weak and ineffective government. Following the collapse of the Second Republic was the establishment of the appropriately named Third Republic, which immediately began to reverse the post-1871 humiliations. The leaders of the Third Republic made it their goal to bring France out of the depths of depression by rebuilding its military honor. It imposed a heavier tax on its people, more than twice that of Germany, and soon enough, the 5 billion franc war indemnity had been paid, and the newly formed government announced a five-year military plan, which called for the drafting of all able-bodied men between 20 and 40 years of age. This rapid turnaround was a key reason for Bismarck to pursue the alliance with the Austro-Hungarians in 1879. But despite these improvements, the Third Republic faced a huge internal problem, its population. Since 1871, French population had remained stagnant, while Germany's was skyrocketing. Margaret Macmillan places the population at 39 million French to about 60 million Germans. The effect of this was that while the French were outspending the Germans on their military, they were drawing their troops from an aging demographic, and in the event of a prolonged war, the Germans would hold the overall advantage in manpower. Luckily for the French, the solution to this problem was dropped right in their laps when word came that the Russians were about to hit the open market as an unrestricted free agent. The two sides, who for decades had nothing in common besides sharing the same landmass, now found themselves in need of what the other was offering. The Russians presented a path out of isolation, and its vast population over 100 million could be used to subsidize France's military manpower problem while the French, due to their tax reform under the Third Republic, would be able to invest massive amounts of money into the struggling Russian infrastructure. These loans would then be used to develop its lacking industry and lay down miles of new railways, allowing the Tsarist military forces to mobilize and deploy at a much faster rate. In 1891, the same year of Wilhelm's decision not to renew the treaty with Russia, the French and Russians began to float the idea of a possible military agreement. Initially, the early stages of the talks were little more than an exchange of letters between the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Nicholas Gears, 
and the Russian ambassador in Paris, Arthur Morenheim. The exchanges outlined that since the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy, along with the neutrality of the British, had left the French and Russians isolated, then the two nations should be ready to pledge mutual support for the other by holding regular military council meetings in the event of a future crisis. Over the next couple of years, negotiations between the two nations would continue. Gears was able to succeed in securing a series of French loans, which allowed the Tsar Alexander III to warm up to the idea of a formal military agreement. This was further assisted by Alexander's wife, the Empress Maria. The Tsarina was descended from the Danish royal family, who had despised the Germans ever since their war over the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein way back in 1863. So the Tsar not only had economic interests in the alliance, but a personal one as well. So, in January of 1894, the two powers signed on the dotted line, officially marking the formation of the Franco-Russian alliance. Building on the terms from the 1891 exchanges, the Franco-Russian alliance contained a number of pledges which were aimed directly in the event of a war with Germany. If conflict were to arise between the three powers, the French would mobilize over a million men, while the Russians would contribute 800,000 in response. The combined forces would then assault the German frontier simultaneously, forcing the Germans into fighting a two-front war. And you'll recall from the last episode that this was the exact thing Bismarck had warned about. And now, here it was in writing. The Franco-Russian alliance was a bold move, and it signified that if two powers could find themselves in a military agreement, despite being polar opposites in nearly everything else, then the diplomatic game had changed for good. Although the terms of the alliance were to remain top secret, the two sides made no effort to conceal their newfound friendship. Following the ratification, naval celebrations were held by both parties. The spectacles held in Marseilles and St. Petersburg drew the attention of outside observers, who wrote that it was the dawn of a new era in European diplomacy. And it most certainly was. Up until 1894, the alliances which have appeared were designed to solve common points of interest. For example, the Germans acting as moderators for the Austro-Hungarians. But the Franco-Russian alliance was designed for the sole purpose of a war against Germany. It was aggressive in nature, and signified that alliances were no longer strictly for economic or diplomatic purposes. If Bismarck had still been in office, it is interesting to wonder how different things may have turned out. Certainly, he never would have let the reinsurance treaty expire. And it is clear that he was also open to an alliance with the British. So it really is one of the great what-ifs of the late 19th century. But what cannot be denied is that the long-standing German fear of encirclement, that same fear which drove Bismarck to create the alliance system in the first place, was now a reality. Wilhelm's neglect of his nation's relationship with Russia had exposed his landlocked country to a combined assault on its western and eastern frontiers. If by chance war were to break out and France and Russia were to get the jump, then it was widely believed that the Reich would crumble under their combined weight. This problem was acutely noted by the German chief of staff, Alfred von Schlieffen, who firmly believed that the key to military victory was in quick aggressive assaults, designed to overwhelm and shock the enemy defenders. Historians have labeled this military creed as the cult of the offensive, and although it had origins in Germany, it would come to influence all military thinkers by the First World War. With the signing of the Franco-Russian alliance, the German treaty with the Austro-Hungarians took on a new characteristic as well. 
The dual monarchy was now seen as the only friend of Germany on the continent, and, as we will see later, Wilhelm will be forced to rely on that friendship at an increasing rate in the decades leading to 1914. The Italians were regarded as nothing more than junior partners of the Triple Alliance, and will be left on the sidelines and would never come to play a major factor in future disputes between the two alliance camps. But where the Franco-Russian alliance had the most impact was not on the continent itself, but on a little island off the coast of France, Great Britain. The British have been popping in and out of our narrative ever since the first episode, but as of yet, we have not spent a lot of time discussing them in detail. As we have seen, ever since the Congress of Vienna, the British have remained on the periphery of European relations. Their biggest adventure into continental affairs after 1815 was during the Crimean War of 1853, which they helped in checking Russian advances into Ottoman territory. Of course, the British were always there, but more often than not, they only took an active interest in the other powers if they felt their own imperial well-being was under threat. For example, they chose to intervene in 1853 because the Russian movements threatened their holdings in India and the security of Constantinople. For years, the British had adapted an unofficial policy of splendid isolation, where it was widely believed that their overseas empire and unchallenged naval supremacy would be enough to keep them immune from any developments on the mainland. Unlike the empires of Russia, Napoleon, Rome, or even the Ottomans, the British Empire was not a single landmass, and even today, you could argue that it was the only true global imperial power. From the Parliament in London, its vast holdings included Ireland, over a quarter of Africa, India, Burma, Hong Kong, and New Guinea, along with various other possessions in the Pacific by 1890. Not to mention, its indirect administration of dominions in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Even if the British did not have the presence of a military garrison, it could still heavily influence policy in areas outside the empire, such as in South America. Hence the expression, the sun never set on the British Empire, as it literally had possessions in every single time zone. Due to its unique makeup, the British Empire took a different approach to foreign policy than anyone else. Since it was so spread out, it required the presence of a strong navy and constant administration in order to keep the imperial apparatus stable. As it was an island, it was dependent on the imports from its overseas possessions if it wished to feed its population and maintain its position in the world. Any disruption in its colonies could have disastrous consequences on the imperial economy. This is why the British always took a bigger interest in their own empire than events on the European continent. As long as events there remained at the status quo, then the British could continue to focus their efforts on maintaining their imperial presence elsewhere. But by 1894, the British were facing a new form of isolation. Not one they had imposed themselves, but one which had been imposed on them. With the French, Germans, Italians, Austro-Hungarians, and Russians all interlocked in the alliance system, this left the British as the odd man out, and this was a fairly frightening development. In essence, it was not that the British had decided not to attend the party, but that they had not been invited at all. With Europe clearly divided into the Triple and Franco-Russian alliances, meant that the British had limited options. Previously, they could have always taken to the bank that at least one or two of the continental powers would remain outside of an alliance, as the French did since 1871. But now, with no one there to balance out the equation, the British faced a fork in the road. 
The first option would be to ally with one camp or the other, but that would mean ending their self-imposed isolation, which the British feared would be interpreted as a sign of weakness, or they could remain neutral. Remaining neutral may seem more along their preference, but they were quick to recognize that the Italians, French, Russians, and Germans had interest in territories near or already under British possession. There arose a concern over the possibility of a Continental League aimed at dislodging the British from their holdings overseas. Since the Continental Powers all had interest in British-held territory, the prospect of another alliance bringing the French, Germans, and Russians into open opposition to the British became more pressing by the day. Things were not helped by the fact that in 1899, the British would again find themselves in a war over their holdings in South Africa. The Boer War of 1899-1902 was met with widespread criticism from the rest of Europe. Not only were the Boers, who were descendants of Dutch settlers, giving the British a run for their money, but harsh imperial military policies, such as the early appearance of concentration camps, had made the continental states reluctant to ally themselves with the island power. Developments like these forced the British to realize that they now found themselves on the outside looking in, and that the scales had tipped away from favor. Alone and friendless, the British began searching the globe for an ally, and in 1902 they would find one, not in the French, Germans, or Russians, but with a new emerging power in the Far East, Japan. Next week, we will look at how the British slowly ended their policy of splendid isolation, but it was not so much to do with events in South Africa, but events in China, where, in the summer of 1900, the infamous Boxer Rebellion would ignite, which threatened to eject all European interests in the Far East. But one more thing before we go. I wanted to point out that if you are listening to this podcast through iTunes, you might be interested to know where the Great War Podcast is hosted. You can find its website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com Again, that's thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com All lowercase, no capitals. It is at that address where I post any news or announcements relating to future episodes. So, if you get a minute, check it out. So thanks for sticking by, and we will see you next week.